in our walk through 2 Corinthians, where we'll be in chapter 4 this morning. So if you'll open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll read from there shortly. But first, I want you to think for a moment, and let's be honest. If you see somebody living with a problem, whether it's a problem they acknowledge or a problem they don't acknowledge, something harming their lives, either in the here and now or their eternal life, well, maybe it should be more direct. Let's call this, we see somebody living with sin or in sin, whether they acknowledge it or not. And if they ask or not, if you were to open Scripture, read what God has to say on the subject, show them how Scripture applies to the matter, and show them what the Word says for them to do. God himself has to say about, show them what God himself has to say about their problem, their sin, how they need to fix it. We definitely will see a result. However, I think if you've ever done that, you know the result is not always the good one. Uh, for the most part, even if they ask for the advice, when they see it from God's Word, when they hear what God has to say, they'll become angry or even openly hostile. It doesn't matter if this is in an evangelistic setting or a discipleship setting. It doesn't matter whether the person young or old, rich or poor, educated or not. They don't like to hear God's Word. They see what God has to say as a stumbling block to their lives and their desires. They see it as foolishness. And the question is often asked in the church, especially in our day and age, how do we fix this? How do we get them to accept Jesus? What shall we do to get them to turn to God? How can we get them to come to Christ and be a Christian? How do we get them to live as a Christian? That question is answered boldly by Paul in this passage. So let us read it. We'll read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, even though we will only be looking at the first two verses today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves for everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For all we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted 
but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body, the death of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We will not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look to this passage this morning, as we look to this principle of faithfully and truthfully revealing the Scriptures, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds and fill us with desire for your kingdom and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we come in this section to things that we have talked about many times in the book already, Paul is coming back to and touching upon over and over again this idea of a faithful ministry being revealing the truth of God truthfully, not as peddlers of the word as we saw previously, but as those who are given a commission and will account, have to give an account to God for what they have said. This ministry of the true gospel is unveiled and uncorrupted by the true ministers of God. We saw last time that in the law of Moses, there was a veil that hid from the Jews the reality of Christ, and they did not accept the revelation of Christ because that veil had not been removed, and the veil is only removed by the giving of the Spirit. And now we see Paul is continuing with that basic thought and moving on into his next thought, which we will see shortly. It is by God's mercy and good pleasure alone that anyone was saved. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Because God is the one who does, Paul does not have to worry. He does not have to worry whether he is adequate, does not have to worry whether he has handled it in a manner which is pleasing to men. Because it is God who gives the growth. Paul plants and Paulus waters, but it is God who gives the growth. Men understand that they're personally responsible for that work, especially the work of God. As James said, not many of you should be presumed to be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, James 3.1. Men lose heart because they don't see their success in the work at least from a worldly perspective. We don't have the numbers, we don't have the popularity, we don't have the funds, we don't see the, the vast numbers converted. You know, we read about these churches that grow by 
500 people in a year because their new pastor is so awesome. And other pastors feel kind of inadequate and feel like giving up sometimes. Burnout comes because we want the success that we don't have, and we work and we work and we work, trying to find a way to get it, but it doesn't come. The words of verse 1 here should point us back to what we did in the last two weeks, chapter 3, especially the word therefore. It was tying it to what he just finished saying. Paul freely admits that we're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Speaking of himself as a minister and as an apostle, and speaking of his ministry team of pastors that was going with him, says, but our sufficiency is from God. I'm reading Second Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Not that we... So, who is God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Speaking back to the superiority of the gospel ministry compared to the Mosaic Covenant's ministry. Continue on down in verse 12, he says, Speaking of that hope of the new and better covenant, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Bold in what you might ask? Well, in the ministry of the New Covenant, of course, in the preaching of the biblical New Covenant, in all that it entails, no matter the cost and no matter the consequences. In this chapter 4, a little later on in verse 16, he says again, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We'll get to that passage in due time, but think about what he calls light and momentary affliction. He documents that later in the book, you know, in beatings and floggings, uh, being beaten with rods. That was the Jewish punishment, being flogged, uh, being shipwrecked, being attacked, being in danger from bandits in the sea and everything else. Light and momentary. <laughs> uh, certainly infinitely more than I want to work, uh, suffer in my lifetime. Thank you. Uh, but he compares that to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us and says it is nothing. This is the context of not losing hope. We do not lose hope because we have those great promises. We have that assurance. And we saw last week, or the week before, Paul was sharing about how the conversion of their souls was proof that his ministry was right before God and that he took his comfort from that. On the other hand, modern evangelicalism is focused more on the success ministry. And when we look at success from a worldly perspective, we will often look for ways to improve our message. I remember being struck when I first became a Christian, wanting to learn how to do evangelism and getting into the evangelism explosion program and being taught that if I have the right technique, I will get many converts, and if I have a poor technique, I will have few. Uh, and I'm thinking, that doesn't sound right. Uh, the purpose-driven church, we've all heard of the purpose-driven life, but there's also, you also wrote the purpose-driven church, which teaches churches how to achieve the purpose of growth. Not of God, but of growth. 
And that's where modern evangelicalism has headed off the rails and gone to. And we might ask in those cases, you know, what are the barriers to getting people to accept our message? The barriers to getting them to join our church? Which comes out of the question, what, what offends them? We'll be tempted to obfuscate those things. I know it's a word not everybody knows, but I love it. Obfuscation means what it implies in the context, hiding or obscuring the meaning to get what you want, essentially. It is the idea that by making it unclear and unintelligible, you can sneak the offensive part fast, people, so that hearing they don't understand and seeing they don't perceive, but by the will of man, not the will of God. They want to hide the truth because the truth offends. It breaks their fantasy world and it shakes their confidence and their righteousness. And the world doesn't want that. I remember the pointy-haired boss in Dilbert said once, gee, I don't understand any of that, so it must not be important. And that's what happens, though, in what they do. They try to make things not have the meaning so that you pass over the things that would offend them. And that even happens with good pastors in good churches. They get worried about how do I not have, like with MacArthur recently, how do I not have a bunch of people get up and walk out in the middle of my sermon? Because I said something that offends. And the temptation comes to hide it, to be ashamed of it, to make it so that it doesn't become a barrier to their acceptance of my ministry, the acceptance of the gospel. We want to win them no matter what. Think of the Jews in, G in Paul's day and in Jesus' day, particularly concerning the gospel and concerning the Messiah. You might not have noticed it, but their whole focus on Jesus' ministry and their big complaint was that they were looking for the Jesus, the Messiah of the second coming the one who comes and crushes all the enemies of Israel, who raises Israel up, who gives them more fortune and more grace and more greatness than they've ever had, who rules over them forever, who crushes all of their enemies. They wanted that. And that was what they focused on. That was what they perceived as being right to the gospel. Jesus, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, to be crucified, told them, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to, going to die. And the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? John 12, 32-34. And even his disciples had the same expectation. They thought he was going to remain and establish Israel and rule over Israel and all the promises of the Old Testament for the future of Israel would come true in him. Remember at his ascension, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they'd gathered all together, they asked him, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That was their earnest expectation. They, they longed for those promises of God. But they were neglecting all the passages about the Messiah being the suffering servant, about him needing to die for the sins of his people. Paul kept explaining this over and over again to the Jews. Acts 17, verse 2 and 3, gives us an, an example. 
Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That was Paul's message. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted the eternal Messiah, the second coming Messiah, the Lord who would crush their enemies and give them power and wealth. So as you can imagine, it wasn't received very well. Think of all the things he says he suffered at the hands of the Jews. In chapter 11, he talks about that here in 2 Corinthians. And it says... It was He had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Those are an increasing order of the severity of the punishment under the law. Three times I was shipwrecked, etc., etc. But think about that. Five times I got forty lashes minus one. Three times his bones were broken with rods. One time he was stoned and dragged out of the city, thought dead, all at the hands of the Jews. Why did he suffer those things? Because he gave them the message they did not want to hear. Someone might ask, well, wasn't Paul just being a firebrand? Wasn't he devoid of tact? I've been told that about myself many times, and I am somewhat lacking in tact at times. I work on it, but wasn't he just making trouble for himself? Someone might ask, wouldn't Paul have been more successful if he hid or worked around these offensive matters? In our example, when evangelizing the Jewish audience, couldn't he share the gospel without mentioning the stumbling block of the cross before the Jews, without casting it before their feet? Couldn't he share the gospel without being so malicious as to provoke them with the things they didn't like? Couldn't he avoid speaking of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ to the Gentiles because they thought it was foolishness? Couldn't he share the gospel without that? Because that would make it more easy for them to accept. You know, we reach them where they are. We share with one what they need. But that's not what they need, hope. They need the truth. You can imagine that he might have been able to do it differently. Now think about it. The offense of the cross to the Jews was very severe. We don't always remember that because we're coming from a New Testament perspective. But in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21, we get the reference to this, Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. <clears throat> if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. You shall not devile the land that your Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. How could they follow a Messiah who was cursed by God? That was the stumbling block of the cross, the biggest one for the Jews. We want to follow the Messiah who's Lord of all, who's God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. And you say, our Messiah is cursed by God? And so it was a stumbling block. But we have all read why he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Why was he cursed by God? He became cursed for us. They neglect all such passages 
all such teaching, all such ideas. But Christ says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, Galatians 3.13. We cannot evangelize the Jew without the cross, without the curse. He became a curse for us. He took the curse upon himself. He paid the price due for our sins. That is how we are saved, if we omit that, because it stumbles the Jew. That is the gospel, the gospel? No. Paul says the Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach, preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That was 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23. He's already said that to the Corinthians that he's writing to now. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, and yet he says, we don't cover it up. We don't hide it. We don't put it aside so that they'll be comfortable. We don't omit it from the gospel so that they'll accept the gospel. He says, we preach Christ crucified. Same way then is now. The vicarious atonement, the resurrection of Christ from the dead and our resurrection to come, this foolishness to the Gentiles. Even some even evangelical churches have said the vicarious atonement, the substitutionary atonement, where Jesus pays for our sins and our sins are put upon him and he lived a light, righteous life and the credit for that is put upon us. They say that is foolishness. It cannot be. And yet Paul says that's what we preached. In the resurrection of Christ, we know that the price was paid for our sins in full. When our sins were put upon him, he had to die because the wages of sin is death. But when he had paid it in full, death no longer had power over him because he had no sin. He was pure. He had paid everything in full. And thus he had to raise from the dead. And his resurrection assures us that it is paid in full. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Paul, indeed, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then you are still in your sins. Because then Jesus hasn't paid it all. Otherwise, he would no longer be dead. So can we hide that, though? Can we say, that is not wisdom to the world, so we won't talk about that. But if you don't, what is the gospel? Where is the gospel without that? We can see these things easily. We cannot say that. We can never pay for our own sins. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of the life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Psalm 49, verse 7 through 9. Only when Christ is paid for the price, only when the atonement is full, can we possibly have hope of the resurrection and the life to come. Only then can we have hope that, that we will not have to spend eternity in hell paying for our sins. Paul says, or Peter says of our life, that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. That substitutionary atonement which is despised by the world is really the center of the gospel. Churches that, dis that denounce it 
did not have a gospel. What do they have left without that? But the world says, if you want to be successful, shouldn't you not do the offensive things? And also, if you want to be successful, shouldn't you understand the desires of your audience? What do they want? If we reach them with what they want, then they will accept. Just as the salesman said, if I have the right product, I'll get the sale. And so we change the, change the product, change the gospel. Should we hide the Jew from the Jews across and give them a sign so that they'll accept Jesus? Shouldn't we prove the rightness of the Christian claim of lordship and superior, with superior wisdom to reach the Greeks? Should we obfuscate Christ's demand? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Should we hide Paul's call to examine ourselves and see whether you're in the faith? Test yourselves to see if you indeed meet the test unless you fail to meet the test. Should we hide that from the youth group to make them more comfortable and instead give them a rock band and parties and entertainment and fun times so that they'll stay in the church? Shall we teach them that the church needs to adapt to their desires of their culture, of their age, of their time, of their generation, rather than teach them the truths of God? Can't we just hide those difficult things that keep them away and give them the things they want in the hopes that one day they will have grown enough in grace that they start to understand the things we're hiding from them and come to know God? Is that going to work? Even if you take them aside and tell them those things years later, they're going to say, but I've been in the church for five years in the youth group and I've never heard such nonsense before. You've burned the cross. You've hidden the gospel. To answer those who think such methods and practices are acceptable, Paul continues in his boldness in verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul gives a similar denunciation of this in his second letter to Timothy. He expects to die, and we believe he did die not long after this. So he tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. A lot of times we forget the patience and we're impatient with people. We've talked about that many times. But note, the commandment is to reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. <coughs> I'd like you to keep that in mind as we go through verse 2. 
The world wants the ear tickling. It wants to hear what suits their passions. But Paul says, we have denounced, renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Uh, a more literal translation is found in the King James. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Uh, it's hard to really put the Greek into English without doing a little bit of a paraphrase because the two languages don't always work together cleanly. The idea being, though, that he is trying to declare both his own sincerity and, and his own integrity, which he has done a few times in this letter, while showing the lack of that in his opponents because they've been quite deceitful. And he uses a very strong verb here, the only time it's in the New Testament. We have renounced such things, meaning we, have, we want nothing to do with them. We have completely separated from them. They have no place in the Christian ministry or in the Christian life. I would liken it to Paul's statement about the appeal of women. Remember in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, he says that a woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. A woman, a woman who makes her appeal to her husband or man, you know, to her potential husband in particular, through her immodest dress, through her makeup, through her jewelry, can't also make an appeal through her godliness. She's using the first as a substitute for the second and as a replacement, really, for what's lacking in the second. And she may deceive a man, but how? By appealing to his base desires, to his lust rather than to her true character. And this is what happens in the church. We appeal, the church is appealing to what the person wants instead of what the person truly needs. And it's a sad thing. But false teachers will often do that, appeal to desires instead of giving them the unadulterated truth. I remember hearing a story of a Chinese woman who was being sued by her husband for deceiving him. The baby was born, and here's this beautiful woman who looks half Western, you know, with the, the white pale skin, the proper nose, Western nose, the eyelids with the folds. And the baby is born, and he has a round face with round eyes with unfolding eyelids, a little tiny nose. He looks very Chinese, and the man is very offended by his wife. Finds out she'd had plastic surgery to change her look. And he felt deceived and sued her for compensation. Now, yeah, the man was despicable, but so was the wife, if you think about it. She was doing all of those things to trick somebody into marrying her. But Paul's opponents are doing the same kind of thing to seduce people to follow them. Deceitful workmen and shallow people who want their ears tickled. They're not going to get what they think they're getting. He's, Paul goes on to say, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. The word cunning there could even be translated sophistry. Sophistry is that subtle, deceptive, false reasoning or argumentation where they're, they're, they make fine-sounding arguments, as Paul talks about it to the Corinthians, 
but it's, it's a little deceitful, a little false, and they're leading people astray. They do this in many ways. They all will corrupt the same offensive truths with different techniques. And I wanted to give one example here as I, I talk about this. Think about what's tearing apart the Presbyterian Church in America right now. They're divided over the place of women in the ministry. And it's become quite a problem. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That she will be saved through trial-bearing, if childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, many churches will outright refuse to speak about this. They may be orthodox. They may have all the right doctrines and all the right beliefs, but they're going to play the shell game and hide that. Oh, ignore that man behind the curtain. Ignore that truth that offends. Otherwise, half the church will get up and walk out in the middle of my service. That was what happened to MacArthur, right? <laughs> Not half, but a small number, but a significant enough number to make national news. That's the danger. So even in the best of churches, you may find them unwilling to speak about that passage. One of the reasons I go through books, as I've explained this before, is I can't hide from God's Word. I have to preach the whole counsel of God's Word if I go verse by verse through each book, because that way, even the offensive things come up eventually. And in God's grace, we deal with it. We don't hide it, but some do. Others try to dilute it so it isn't that offensive. Oh, but no, Paul says, I do not. Therefore, it's just his practice. It's not the church's practice. And we don't need to follow it. Now, subtle-sounding arguments, sophistry. But they do it. Others dismiss it. They say, well, Paul was just being a male chauvinist of his age. We're more enlightened today. And, you know, we need to interpret the Bible through our enlightened eyes. Now, that was what happened after the Reformation, when the power of the Church of Rome was broken, and the Reformers were saying, we need to reform everything in light of the Scriptures. Along comes another group. They call themselves modernists. They wanted to reform everything in light of the Enlightenment that was going on in the culture. Uh, They're now known as Arminians. But a lot of their doctrine comes from the principles of the Enlightenment. That happens a lot. They want to dilute what's offensive so that it doesn't offend anymore. And they want to reinterpret scriptures in a way that contradicts other scriptures. I have heard it argued to my face by a pastor that Priscilla and Aquila proves that there were women pastors. I'm like, how does that prove? Well, it overrules this passage because she was clearly a. No, she wasn't. She was working with her husband. That doesn't mean she was a pastor. And she could have been dealing with the women and children, helping him in that way, and they worked together every day. It doesn't say she was a pastor. This says she couldn't be a pastor. And therefore, the clear passage overrules theirs. But they say, no, we have an interpretation of this passage, and it ruled it crushes all of the things that oppose it throughout the Bible. Again, just sophistry.
They also will often take Scripture out of context to give it more an acceptable or desirable meaning. We all know the beloved passage in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil. They give you a future and a hope. People say, what's wrong with that? I can get a coffee mug with it, a t-shirt with it, a bookmark with it, a, I can get a poster for the wall with it. What's wrong with that statement? God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. There's, you know, If I follow Christ, there'll be no suffering, no sorrow, no hardship. What about Christ saying, take up your cross daily and follow me? What about Paul saying, if you want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted? Oh, well, you know, we throw those out because this is a better promise. And they ignore the context. What does verse 10 say, the verse before that? For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, national Israel, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. He's talking to national Israel that the exile will end just as he promised, and he will restore them. And he did read the books that follow, the historical books that follow the end of the exile. You know, we do have great promises. All things will work together for good for those who are called and all of that. It doesn't promise what they wanted to promise, though. It doesn't promise my best life now. It promises an eternal reward for what we suffer now. These light and momentary afflictions that Paul mentioned. And so they will twist things. They will turn things. They will find a way to skirt around those. Did God really say? Oh, we know where that comes from, right? Adam and Eve. They're no different. When Paul is condemning them in Second Timothy, and it, he is not saying that these are my brothers in Christ who are a little off. He's saying these people are enemies of the gospel. They, they undermine the gospel. They do many things like that. Now, I've heard it argued, oh, but, you know, we want to build the church. We want to build the kingdom of God. We want to fill the world with our gospel. The ends justify the means. If we're going to use a little deception to get them into the church and keep them happy, we can do that. It'll work out for good. Machiavelli was wrong. Now, of course, I've heard philosophers argue that Machiavelli never intended to argue, you know, to give a carte blanche to tyranny into lies and deceptions and sin. But I certainly disagree. That principle that he came up with has always been used to excuse means that are unacceptable and make them acceptable if the results are what you want. If you want your church to be full, it's okay to water down the gospel. It's okay to turn away from the truth. No, it isn't. What does the Bible say? We see this all the time, though. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, First Peter 1, 15 through 17. God's principle is the exact opposite. It isn't the ends that he is looking to. 
It is the way we live our lives every day. We are not responsible for the growth. Paul watered, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God gives the growth. We look to him for the end result. We look to ourselves to do it the way God has said to do it. Remember the story I told you a while back about that evangelical pastor who had won thousands of people to Christ. And in his small town, you know, he'd won like half the population to Christ. You get to his church, he's got like, what, 10 people? Where are the rest of them? Where, you know, where are the other thousands? Just because you get somebody to say the sinner's prayer doesn't mean God has changed their heart. Doesn't mean they have been converted. Doesn't mean they've been born again. Doesn't make them a Christian. Remember the story, I think it was you, Becky, you told us about the evangelist who went to the wedding, harassed the guests, even harassed the bride and groom until they would at least say the sinner's prayer and then he'd leave them alone. They can't enjoy their own wedding. Yes, of course they said it. But what was their attitude towards Christianity? Those horrible Christians ruined by wedding. The ends do not justify the means. Getting one to say the sinner's prayer by hook by crook isn't going to make them born again, nor does making an unbeliever feel comfortable in a Christian church by tampering with the Word of God to make it acceptable. That's not going to make them converted. That's not going to make them grow spiritually. It's not going to be of any benefit. As I said earlier, without the cross that offended the Jews, the gospel would not be there for the Jews. Without the resurrection and the vicarious atonement of Christ, the gospel would not be there for the Gentiles, even though they hated it, thought it was foolishness. When a youth group is taught that the church needs to adapt to whatever they want, they're never going to be transformed by Christ. They're going to want to transform the church when they grow up and grow upstairs. And in fact, they do transform the church or leave. Transform the church into the image of the world that they had in the youth group instead of into the image of Christ in scriptures. Which brings us to the end of verse 2. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone conscience in the sight of God by the open statement of the truth, even though the truth is hated. Now, we've been talking about the gospel, and I've shared my testimony before. But I went to church after church after church hearing nothing of the gospel. In fact, one church I was told to go to another church closer to home when they found out where I lived. Finally, I show up at a Christian church. One is the pastor in the pulpit preaching. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Can you think of a less seeker-friendly message to hear? And yet, it was not the power of the message from the pastor, but the power of the Spirit of God and the power of God himself that opened my mind and opened my eyes and opened my understanding to, wow, yes, now I understand what it means to be a Christian. I never heard anything like this before. And it was that message that very non-seeker-friendly, you-should-never-tell-an-unbeliever message that led me to the Lord. I remember the, the guy from work who brought me there, he told me later that he was praying the whole time that I wouldn't start screaming and run out of the church. <laughs> but the truth was, you know, it is not the power of men to persuade, 
It is the power of the Spirit of God to change the heart. And unless he changes the heart, as we'll see next time, Lord willing, unless he changes the heart, the gospel will stay veiled forever. It will not be understood. And no matter what you do, by hook and by crook, you may get them in, but you can't make them a believer. He says that we commended ourselves by that truth, by giving it unadulterated truth that is hated by the world and brings persecution and violence to us. But that truth is how we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We already read about how will we judge more strictly the teachers in James. But Jesus says this of his servants, the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who know, did not know and did what is deserving of beating will receive a light beating. Everyone who has been given much, much is required, and everyone who has been entrusted with much, they will demand more. Luke twelve forty seven and 48. Paul's conscience was clean. He said, I am the innocent of the blood of all men because I have always preached the whole counsel of God, referring back to that passage of Ezekiel being the watchman on the wall. If he blows the trumpet, he's safe. If he doesn't blow the trumpet, he's guilty of the blood of anyone who doesn't repent. And thus, Paul says, if I don't preach the whole counsel of God, I'm guilty of the blood of those who haven't heard from me their sin. So when pastors and churches say, well, we won't touch on that sensitive subject because it will offend they're now guilty of the blood of those who die for their sin on that matter. To all those who would conceal, hide, corrupt the word of God, Jesus speaks plainly. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels, Mark 8, 38. Jesus will be ashamed of those churches who are ashamed of his word and hide it from the people so that they are not offended. We also will find that in our lives if we're afraid to tell somebody when the opportunity is there to go and answer for the reason for the hope that is in us because it will offend. Then that means we are ashamed of it. We don't want to face the trial for it. And God will be ashamed of us. I want to close with a reminder of what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The word of God, the scriptures, especially the parts about sin and salvation, are the power of God to convert men, to convert souls. Yet, to those who are not converted, it is an offense. It is a stumbling block. It is foolishness. It is hate speech. It is evil, but to God and to God's people, it is the power of God to the conversion of souls. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Paul's encouragement in this passage to think about what true success is. It's not in the number of our converts, not in the power, the money, the prestige, 
but it is in being faithful in the little things day by day in your word. Being faithful to your word and loving your word and preaching and sharing your word as truth, understanding that it has the power of your spirit to convert those you would convert, the power to bring about the sanctification of your people, the power to transform our lives and our world. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to always be faithful and true no matter the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.